0: Have you heard about the man who needed legal help? He phoned a lawyer, and he asked him, How much would you charge to answer three simple questions? The lawyer replied, A thousand dollars. The man answered, A thousand dollars? That's pretty expensive, isn't it? It certainly is, said the lawyer. Now what's your third question? Ah, lawyer jokes. Question, what's the difference between a lawyer and a herd of buffaloes? Answer, a lawyer charges more. Don't worry, there's more where this came from. Well, in verse 25, we read, And behold, a certain lawyer. Except this lawyer wasn't a legal attorney, he was an expert in the Jewish law, he was a theologian. And he came asking the ultimate question of Jesus. He stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A question I'm sure every thinking person has asked at some point in their life. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus commends this man's summation of the Jewish law. The whole law can be boiled down into two principles. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. The law put love on display. Thus Jesus concluded, do this and you will live. And this man would have if love had been in his heart. You see, the problem though is that love doesn't come naturally for any of us. It's sin and selfishness that lurk in the recesses of the human heart. True love for God and love for neighbor comes supernaturally only when we're born of God's Spirit. And this lawyer knew his shortcomings. He was well aware of the reality of his sin and the selfishness in his heart. That's why he's looking for a loophole. He tries to soften the law's demand to get his heart off the hook. Notice what he says in verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Oh, you see, loving others becomes easier when you define who is and who isn't your neighbor, when you're the one who defines. Some folks are easy to love. Don't ask me to love the unlovable. And yet Jesus tells a story that will define for you and I who is our neighbor. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Until the 1990s, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was an uphill, windy, dirt path that snaked its way high above the Celt Gorge. On my first trip to Israel, we traveled this mountain road in a tour bus, and there were places where the tires rolled within inches of a ledge that dropped off, I suppose, thousands of feet into a steep ravine. I'll never forget that bus ride. It was hairy. Today, a modern highway has replaced the ancient path, but the original road was dangerous. It was a haven for road pirates. Ambushes were common. What we call carjackings, they're nothing new. One happened to a certain man on the road to Jericho. Bandits robbed him and beat him to within an inch of his life. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. The theologian who asked the question, prompting the story, may have been a priest and probably a Levite. Rather than let him off the hook, Jesus makes this very personal. Priests and Levites were the two orders of Jewish clergy who supposedly knew God. But here in the story, their hearts lack love for God and compassion for their fellow man. They were probably on their way to serve God. And love for this fellow would have inconvenienced them. In his commentary on this passage, J. Vernon McGee cynically suggests, he says, the reason the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side was that they saw that the man had already been robbed. His wallet was already gone. Somebody had beat them to it. They were as much thieves as the robbers. I'll never forget years and years ago now, long before our church started, My mom asked me to come and teach her Sunday school class one Sunday. The topic was this story, the Good Samaritan. And I'll never forget driving to church that morning to the Baptist church when I passed by a little old lady all dressed up on her way to church. It was obvious where she was going. She was walking to church. And I drove right past her so that I could go down and teach on the Good Samaritan. And I'll never forget pulling into the parking lot and the Lord speaking to my heart. Sandy, what are you teaching on this morning? I went back and gave the lady a ride to church. But at times, we get so busy serving God, we miss the point of serving God in the first place. Our hearts can get callous toward people. Who is our neighbor? Anybody in front of us who has a need. That's our neighbor. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And remember how the Jews hated the Samaritans. Oh, this term, good Samaritan, it was an oxymoron to any Jew. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan, kind of like 30 minute lunch hour, (laughs) fresh prune. Georgia Tech football. I mean, these are just contradictions. (laughs) And here Jesus attacks Jewish pride and prejudice by making the hero of this story the man that the Jews hated most. See, Jesus always gets angry at any form of racism. God values benevolence over birthright. Our heart over our heritage. Here this despised Samaritan has more of God's love in his heart than the Jewish holy men. And so this Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Well, this story teaches us many lessons, but one truth stands out. You can't love your brother and obey God without being willing to sacrifice some convenience and time and image and effort and money. Love rolls up its sleeves. Love is willing to take risks. It doesn't just turn up its nose and stroll past obvious needs. It's willing and ready to get involved. You can't pick someone up without you first getting down and dirty. Jesus is defining who is our neighbor. So he asked the question in verse 36 So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise." While wow, this lawyer wanted off the hook, but Jesus hooked him, his story exposed his lack of love. You see, the lawyer's next question should have been, how do I love? And Jesus would have answered, follow me. For only Jesus can give us a love for God and for our neighbor. This man had originally asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But he wasn't ready for the answer. Jesus first had to create in him an awareness of his loveless heart, and thus his need to follow the Savior. Verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now this village was Bethany. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, just off this Jericho Road, which means the story of the Good Samaritan was even more dramatic since it was told on location. And Martha had a sister named Mary. She also had a brother named Lazarus. You know him. And Mary was a lady who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, you've got to have some empathy for Martha. It's not every night. You have the creator of the universe to your house for dinner. That's why Martha wanted every detail of the evening to be just right, especially her meal. I mean, Martha probably had a reputation to uphold. But when she needed a little help from her sister sidekick, Mary was nowhere to be found. She had been drawn into the other room to be with Jesus. And that's where we're, why we're, what we're told in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Apparently, Martha was confident that Jesus would set her lazy sister straight. Instead, Jesus sets Martha straight. For he answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. And like Martha, we too can get distracted with much serving, can't we? Yes. Please understand, the primary reason Jesus saved you and I is for us to know Him. So many people think the reason God saved you... Was so that you could serve Him. No. God has angels that can do that. And trust me, the angels can do a lot better job serving Him than you can. No, fellowship is the reason Jesus died for us. Our Savior wants a love relationship with us. Even our service is just a way for us to spend time with Jesus. Mary understood this. Do you? Where are you most often found? in the kitchen of service, or at Jesus' feet? Well, chapter 11 begins. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And it amazes me that the disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to heal the sick or cast out demons, or walk on water. Or, you know, Lord, that thing you did with the water and turned it into wine. Boy, I'd like to be able to do that. Can you teach me that? They never said that. Or, Lord, teach me to open the eyes of the blind. Not once did they request a course on miracles, yet they came and asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. For I think the disciples knew, they deeply sensed that prayer was the key to Jesus' miraculous life. And if they knew how to pray, they too could tap in to God's incredible power. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice Jesus teaches them to pray by giving them a model prayer. See, prayer is more caught than taught. You learn to pray by doing it. And the first component to prayer is adoration. We need to hallow or make holy His name. To hallow God is to observe His uniqueness and His supremacy. Prayer expresses human need, but it always begins exalting God. Prayer should always start with praise. The second component to prayer is submission. For he says, your kingdom come. Pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The ultimate goal in prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Thus, before I submit my request, I first need to submit my will. God doesn't exist for my pleasure or your pleasure. We exist for His. And it's only after I've submitted to what's best for God's kingdom rather than my own, then God can trust in my request. Which brings us to prayer's third component, supplication. He says, give us day by day our daily bread. And notice our asking should be done daily. You know, every morning God sent the wonder bread, the heavenly manna to the Hebrews in the desert. But they could only gather that day's portion if they tried to hoard it. It's spoiled, the bread spoiled. God wanted them going to Him day by day. And the same is true for us. The Lord rarely gives me more than I need, lest I forget Him. Rather, He gives me each day's portion, so I'll keep coming back for more. And we're also to pray for our spiritual needs namely, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And God grants as God grants us His forgiveness. It encourages us to forgive those who sinned against us. You see, our prayer and our repentance go together. And of course, verse 4 brings up an interesting question. When I come to Jesus, doesn't He forgive me of all my sin? Past sin, present sin, even future sin? And certainly He does. But if so, why do I need to continually ask for forgiveness? And the answer is in the old adage, confession is good for the soul. You remember that? Confession is good for the soul. I ask to be forgiven, not because I lack forgiveness, but confession helps me maintain a right attitude. It keeps me honest and humble and repentant. Confession, that is seeking God's forgiveness, is the antidote for pride. And this model prayer continues. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And here are two more spiritual needs we should pray for. Direction and protection. Lead us not into temptation, that's direction. And deliver us from the evil one, that's protection. We need both. Ask God to keep you from falling to steer you from temptation and catch you when you stumble. You can ask God for that and ask Him to deliver you from the devil in his evil schemes. Whenever I walk through our neighborhood, I always carry with me a can of canine repellent just in case I get attacked by a stray dog. I, I just got this problem. That's, that's my issue. I don't want to get attacked by a rabid dog. And prayer is demon-repellent. For like a rabid dog, Satan is on the prowl. And prayer is a squirt of mace right in his face. That's what forces him to back down, your prayers. As we're told in James 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's how you resist him, through prayer. And then still on this subject of prayer, Jesus said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, in Oriental culture, it was a heavy humiliation for a guest to visit, and you have nothing to serve him. So here a family with a late-night guest in an empty pantry runs over to his neighbor and wakes him from sleep. They upset their neighbor in order to save face with their guest. But his neighbor will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. Now evenings in Israel can get really chilly. And in the absence of central heat, families would pile into bed together. Now wouldn't that be fun? And their collective body heat would keep each other warm. And so this neighbor had already gotten comfortable. He didn't want to get out of bed and meander through the house and search for a loaf of bread. This toasty neighbor tells his friend that the bread can wait until the morning. But that's not the end of the story. For Jesus continues, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Apparently, this guy doesn't take no for an answer. He keeps banging on the door until his reluctant neighbor finally ends up fetching him some bread. And Jesus is teaching us that God also responds to our persistence. Sometimes prayer is like banging on the door. God waits until we're desperate. Evidently, our desperation for God's intervention is a good thing. There is power in persistent prayer. Now, I have to admit it, but as a parent, there were times when I caved in to my children's persistence. It's poor parenting, I know. But on occasion, I would allow my kids to pester me into action. Oh, Daddy, please, please, Daddy. Please, Daddy, please, 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 Daddy. And you know, if you give in once expect him to try it again and again and again. Kids are good at pestering. But here Jesus teaches us pestering prayer. Keep banging on God's door. Keep banging. When you think it's time to stop, keep banging. For multiple reasons, God responds to His children's persistence. Look at verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. In the original language it reads, everyone who keeps on asking receives, and he who keeps on seeking finds, and to him who keeps on knocking it will be opened. You know, when my kids did make an off-the-cuff request and never followed up on it, I assumed that it wasn't a big deal. It was just a whim that was best ignored. Perhaps God assumes the same when we ask Him once and stop. It's when we're persistent that God takes us more seriously. Hey, if there's something you're praying about this morning, keep banging. For Jesus continues. Here Jesus makes it clear that just because God responds to our persistent prayers doesn't mean He's a lazy neighbor who has to be badgered into kindness or a reluctant parent who has to be pestered by His kids to provide. No, no. God wants to meet our needs. He's a loving Father who cares about His kids. I love Isaiah 65 verse 24. There the Lord says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Before you call, God's already answered. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. God is a father who loves and relishes giving good gifts to his children. Now, the persistence that God desires doesn't overcome any reluctance on God's part. Rather, it produces a right attitude in us. The fuller rendering of the Greek word in verse 8 is a shameless persistence. It's a desperation that that exceeds and overshadows our sophistication. I'm no longer embarrassed by my need. I'm desperate. See, when God waits to answer my prayer, He's allowing my need to muffle and smother my pride. And that's a good thing. The guy who kept knocking on his neighbor's door was past the point of worrying about his image or what anybody was going to think. His pride had overwhelmed, been overwhelmed by his need. At times, God waits for this to happen in us. And then he answers. Well, verse 14 tells us, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Now, this is unusual. For most of the time, demons create sharp tongues and bitter words and hateful speech. But this demon had pushed the mute button. Jesus, though, chose to cast out this demon. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, understand, Beelzebub was the name that the Jews used for Satan, it meant the Lord of the Flies. Those who opposed Jesus couldn't deny the validity of his miracles, and so they questioned their source. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan's power rather than God's authority. I mean, the logic was ludicrous. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus is saying, sadly, Satan's too successful to be divided. I mean, he gets too much done. He's not certainly not fighting against himself. There was no way that Jesus was in league with Satan. Jesus' miracles were an assault on the enemy says in verse 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. There were also Jewish exorcists who cast out demons, and they were considered God's agents. If the Jews applied this logic to themselves, well, they too were working with Satan. He says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here is the Right, it's the correct explanation of what was happening. Jesus' power over demons and disease and even death was proof that God had come. God's kingdom had come. I love what Jesus says. If I cast out demons with the finger of God. Jesus handles the devil with his little pinky. With his finger. Now don't you underestimate the devil. For you and I, the devil can be a handful. But for Jesus, the devil's nothing. Jesus doesn't even ball up his fist. He can drive out the devil and his demons with his little finger. And then verse 21, Jesus gives the logical explanation for his command over demons. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is the stronger than he. 1 John 4, verse 4 says the same. He that is Jesus who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As strong as Jesus is, Je- as strong as Satan is, Jesus is stronger. He's overcome him. He's defeated his devices, and he's now taken back what he stole. And then Jesus adds in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now remember, it was back in Luke 9 that we we read that Jesus said, He who is not against us is on our side. Now two chapters later, he says the opposite. He who is not with me is against me. What gives here? And this brings up a vital rule in Bible interpretation. To understand a text, seek its context. Reminds me of the sign we used to have hanging in the Calvary Chapel nursery over here. It quoted 1 Corinthians 15 We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, taken literally, that verse was appropriate for the nursery, but it was definitely taken out of context. Well, in Luke 9, Jesus was forbidding sectarian division within his kingdom. See, just because you're not part of our particular group doesn't mean you're not serving God. The church is always bigger than any one group. Yet Luke 11 deals with folks outside God's kingdom. The cause of Christ is bigger than any one group, yet make sure that every group is part of the big group that embraces Jesus as Christ and submits to him as Lord. He who is not with me is against me. You've got to be part of the big group. But he who is not against us is for us. His group is bigger than any one group. The key to understanding the text is context. And then verse 24, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. This explains the impotence of religion. Reformation without regeneration is worthless. Realize, if every human being stopped sinning tomorrow, it wouldn't add a single person to the roles in heaven. Not a single person. Human beings don't just need to stop sinning. We need to address the reason we sin in the first place. If we don't get at the root of our sin, we'll just return to our sinning later with a vengeance. Thus, we need a new birth. Here, Jesus mentions a man who just gets a facelift. Oh, he cleans up his act. He reforms his wicked ways. He calls out the sin in his life, and he drives away the demons. But there's a difference between turning over a new leaf and becoming a new person. Because this man didn't fill the void the evil spirit had occupied with the Holy Spirit, because he did nothing to assure a changed nature... The demon returned and brought his buddies with him, and his latter end was worse than the first. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, AA won't send you to heaven, and it won't keep you out of hell. It just helps you stay sober long enough for you to decide which way you want to go. And that's true. Oh, there's merit in getting and staying sober and cleaning up your life. But it's not the end all. It's not living. Only Jesus transforms a life. He alone can instill joy and peace and give us victory over our sin. See, reformation is man's work. It's external and cosmetic. Regeneration, though, is God's work. It's internal. It reaches to my core, Christianity is more than me turning over a new leaf. It's surrendering ownership of my life to God. True Christianity transforms my life. It involves more than just me removing sin but receiving Christ. It's not just me improving my life or even living my life for God. It's swapping my life for His. It's letting Jesus live His life in me. Have you done that? And Then verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. To Jesus, family affiliation was secondary to spiritual determination. This voice in the crowd praises his mother Mary. And oh yes, Mary was blessed. But Jesus insists more blessed, more Mary than Mary is the person who becomes a womb for God's word and gives birth to obedience. You don't please God by worshiping Mary, but by obeying Jesus. God puts a premium on obedience. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, in other words, a mob had formed, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now remember, Jonah had spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish before he was expelled while Jesus will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth before he's resurrected. See, from here on until the ascension, his ascension to heaven, the resurrection will be the only sign that Jesus will give the Jews. By this point, Jesus was done with signs. The crowd had proved to be nothing but ambulance chasers anyway. They sought thrills, not truth. More evidence was not what they needed. They needed to repent. And in verse 31, Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. It was the queen of Sheba who famously visited Solomon to marvel at his greatness. Yet the Jews witnessed the miracles of Jesus. A man, a king, greater than Solomon. And rather than marvel, they only hardened their hearts in unbelief. Jesus leaves the mob with an ominous warning. The men of Nineveh, as well as the queen of the south, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh of old, as well as the queen, trusted in a lesser witness than was given to the Jews In the judgment, they'll condemn Israel for their lack of faith in Jesus. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. And Jesus was that light. His teachings and his miracles were public record. Jesus' ministry had been out in the open for everyone to see. No one in Israel lacked evidence of his claims. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. See, Israel's problem wasn't insufficient light, but a bad eye. You can have the brightest light, But weak eyes don't allow you to see. And this was the problem with the Jews. Jesus was the bright light. But the people's own pride and prejudice obscured their own vision. They had a bad eye. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Here's the lesson. To see clearly, make sure that your outlook is unbiased. That there's no darkness in your perspective to obscure your objectivity. For if you succumb to self-deception and pride, you'll never see the truth. I'll never forget the big Adams family gathering. My dad happened to mention to his brother that he'd grown some hot peppers out in the garden. Well, my uncle, he... My uncle was a proud man. And and I'll never forget, he was so braggadocious. There's no such thing as a pepper too hot for my taste buds. And I'll never forget him biting into one of my dad's peppers. Tears were rolling down his cheeks. Fire was coming out his ears. And yet that man never once admitted that that pepper was hot. Never. Blinding pride kept him from conceding the obvious and embracing the truth. And this was the Jewish problem. They were blinded by pride. And the chief perpetrators were a sect of legalists known as Pharisees. In fact, in Jesus' day, they were a prominent part Of the religious landscape in Israel. The Pharisees. And we'll talk more about them next week. But this morning. What have we learned? Well we've learned a lot. We've learned that our neighbor. Is anybody we meet. Who has a need. Even if a few moments earlier. You might have thought of him as a stranger. Or a foreigner. Or a victim. Or an enemy even. No, no. He's your neighbor. We've learned that love reaches across racial barriers, and rolls up its shirt sleeves and takes risks. We've learned that God desires our fellowship even more than our service. God wants us to spend time at His feet. We've learned the importance of prayer, and persistent prayer no less, that God answers desperate prayers. If you have a need, only God can meet. (laughs) keep knocking we've also learned that Jesus can handle the devil with his little finger there's even power in his pinky we've learned that Christianity is more than turning over a new leaf it's more than religion it's new it's a new and transformed life that's received by God's Holy Spirit we've learned that God puts a premium on obedience We've learned that God requires more of the people who've been given the greater opportunities. And we've learned that the light shines. But no matter how bright it shines, it can be obscured by the prejudiced eye that takes in that light. Beware of pride and self-deception. Well, we've learned a lot today. May God give us the grace and the wisdom to take all that we've learned to heart this morning and to live our lives pleasing to god father we thank you for your word to us this morning thank you lord to speaking to us lord in so many ways thank you for your word lord how rich and wonderful and instructive it is how encouraging it is to people who struggle in their faith lord make us strong make us bold make us people lord that can be a light in this dark world. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for our time together. We pray you'll bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we ask it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand together. Any Buccaneers fans here today? There's a few. Any uh, Chiefs fans here today?